Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with our friend and the show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey, Nate. Dude, you've had a lot of big changes since last we uh, recorded. Dude, I was thinking of of, uh, starting this episode instead of our usual eastward um music bump i was gonna have a it play newborn by the band elbow mm. maybe i'll still put it in there but yes we have a new baby in our lives congratulations thank you i it was you know i did a lot of work for that you know <laughs> it's a it's a team effort no <laughs> dude i sat i sat in a chair in a corner and tried not to pass out and <laughs> Give me some orange juice, like a little box of orange juice or apple juice, just to make sure that if I started feeling faint, I could just sip on that. So, yeah, this it was really traumatic for me. You know, it was really hard for me, but um, luckily, like I I pushed through and made it. You know, and, and I guess kudos to my wife too for pushing that baby out without an <laughs> epidural or whatever. But your 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 wife is amazing. I I hope uh, that doesn't embarrass her too much to say that on the show. If it does, just cut it out. No, but no. For sure not. She is. She's incredible. She, um, man, she came through like a champ. Uh, when uh, so so for those who don't know, Nate Nate's wife is the uh, primary president. And Correct. My my parents were visiting for the primary program this year, and and they met Nate's wife for the very first time. I don't I don't think they ever talked to her. They just saw her, and they were so impressed by her. My mom tells me all the time how impressive your wife is and how good the primary program was she just an amazing impression on my my mom i I just thinks the world of your wife that is incredibly kind of her to say i i heather i know spent a lot of time working on that program and you know she came through it was good she cares deeply and she produced a beautiful young daughter she did congratulations nate thanks buddy yeah we are talking about Haggai and Zechariah tonight. Haggai. Haggai. Give it, me give me a hint of what Haggai means. Just give me like a give me just like a, a teaser and then I'm going to guess what it is. Uh, on what it means? Yes. On uh, just a little bit of a hint on what it means. Yeah, just a little hint and then I'm going to guess what the name Haggai means. Um do you know what's a, an appropriate name? Given the time of year that we are in and the fact that you just had a new baby. Okay, let's see. Haggai means baby Jesus is getting born in a manger. Pretty close, I guess. Festive. That means that's not even close. What do you mean kind of close? That that's has nothing to do with it. I mean, you get festive around the holidays. So Haggai means festivities? <laughs> It's it's feast sacrifice um, the, the 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 holidays, whatever lame and and you know holiday actually holiday. means holy day. Okay, yeah, I do know that. Yes, and and festive the time of feasting the the time you get together and celebrate something. Okay. That's Haggai. Well, good job, Haggai. Good job, Haggai. What's Haggai got to teach us this week? Oh, I love. 
I love what Haggai has to teach us. I, I, I kind of want to spend a lot of time here on this, uh, partly because it really spoke to me this week and partly because Zechariah has been like my kryptonite the last 20 years. It's, uh, I, I need to dive more into Zechariah. That's, that's like the next big tackle I have. So by the time you're saying by the time on this podcast that we get to Zachariah, we'll be wrapping it up. <laughs> pretty pretty much. Right. We'll see we'll see how it goes. All right. Well let's get there then. Let's get there. Um so a little bit of context. Haggai is is gonna be talking about after Cyrus has conquered Babylon, and he's gonna reference Darius. So if we learn from Daniel, Darius is going to be uh, the the king in Babylon that that is put on there from the Persians, and he's going to allow the Jews to go back and build their their homes and their temple and restore Jerusalem, and and that's where Haggai is. He's he's at this restorative period, and so it is kind of a festive time for them to to celebrate. And and this has been prophesied by other prophets. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who who say, "Thy God reigneth." Who proclaim the good news. And we've used that a lot to talk about Christ and him being born in the gospel. But for these people at this time, it was very significant to be coming out of captivity, literally, physically, not just the spiritual captivity that we envision with the atonement. As powerful as the atonement is, saving us from physical death and spiritual death, but it had dual fulfillment in that also how beautiful upon the mountains and how festive and how wonderful to be saying to the people, you can finally be free and be your own people again and be established in your own country and have your own temple and have your own God after 70 years of, of being without. So let's, yeah, let's start. Um, I, I'm going to actually skip into verse three. Well, let's, 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 let's go two and then we'll go three. Let's see. Chapter one. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house shall be built. So they're saying, not yet, not yet. We're not ready to build a temple yet. And, and I just want to stop right here because that to me is, is very profound in and of itself. When are we ever ready for what God wants us to do? He, he's, they're just going back to Jerusalem, and they're saying, we need to get established first. We need to establish our homes. We need to establish. And, and maybe let me give you a little context to the restoration here. We, we think of, oh, the, Cyrus comes in, he conquers, and he just lets him go free, and there's this mass exodus of hundreds of thousands of people that come back into Jerusalem. But to give you an idea... There's only about 40,000 people that come out in the first group and then another 40,000 that come out in the next group. And the process of coming from Babylon to Jerusalem took them 110 years. This was not just one single deal. And when you talk about them coming back to Jerusalem, what are they going to find? You're living in a city where the entire wall that surrounded you was torn down. And, and that might not seem like a big deal to us today because we don't really have walls around all of our cities. We don't live in forts. But back then, if you didn't have a wall, what's to keep you from marauders or people coming in? It, it was a very big deal. And so you have a group of people. And, and now think about this. If you're moving to an area that doesn't have a city, what, what are you going to do for work? How are you going to provide for your family? There's no infrastructure. There's no anything. Uh, 
So these people are getting here, and these first groups of people, they're saying, look, I've got to build a house. I've got to find a profession. I've got to take care of my family. I can't take care of the Lord. I can't take care of a temple. We've got our priorities out of order. How can we do it when we don't have our basic needs taken care of first? And basically God's saying, put me first before you put yourself first. And, and not only does this apply with these people at this time building the temple, one thing that I really appreciate, Joseph Smith, at least I, I think we attribute this to him in Lectures of Faith, in Lectures of Faith that says, any God that does not require the sacrifice of all things from its people can never produce enough faith to save the people. You have to be willing to sacrifice everything in order to, to get that face. You have to be able to be asked to do hard things and put things first. And, and with the saints in the early time of the church history, God asks them before they're done being persecuted, before they're being chased, done, finished, chased out of their homes and everything to build the temple. How are they going to build a temple when they can't even stay in the same city for longer than, you know, X amount of time? So I do appreciate seeing that connection with modern day Israel and ancient Israel and seeing that continuity and a testimony to me that it is the same God. It is the same Israel. But it doesn't just apply to temple building. When God asks us to go and build a family and we say, okay, wait until I've got enough education. Wait till I make enough money to where I can support a family. Wait until I have enough that I can go and do this. Or or any number of things, right? Do we do we feel like we're inept at being able to do something? I get what you're saying, God, but give me some time to be experienced, to have enough. You know, you look at the missionaries being sent at the age of 18. Wouldn't they want a little bit more experience in life and some time to get a grasp on it before they have to go and teach other people? And yet the God's still demanding that before we're established, before we're settled, we need to do this first. So I'm going to go on to the next verse. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. This is his response to them saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and the house... Um, and this house lie waste. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And that's a powerful statement. I want to hone in on that. Consider your ways. Next verse. Ye have sown much, and I say so, planted much, right? You have planted much, you have sown much, and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So he's repeating himself again. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. He looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, it did blow. I, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man to his own house. Consider your ways. And it, to me, this, this is, I don't know, just really resonated with me. How many times do I feel like I'm spinning my wheels working two or three jobs or trying to provide for my family and it just doesn't feel like it's ever enough or I'm not getting it done. And you have to stop, 
and take stock. And, and maybe for us, it's not necessarily that a temple's not built. But when we consider our ways, maybe a question that we can ask ourselves is, is the temple a priority in our life? When's the last time we've been to the temple? What are we doing with the temple? And how are we bringing the temple into our home? What are we doing with our family? Is God coming first? And, and what are we doing to show that God comes first? And as I was, as I was reviewing this and thinking about this, and, and, and you know, it just kind of hit me powerfully, and I was having a conversation, and, and somebody, as I was talking to him about this, asked me a, a profound question. And they said, why is it that God asks us to put him first? Doesn't that seem absurd? Why would God care more about himself than he would about us taking care of our family? Wouldn't it be more important for him to say to you, go build a house to provide for your family, go take care of your family, and then come back and and worship me? What kind of God asks us to put him first? And you go to the story of Elijah and the widow, and he says, feed me first. What kind of God has his prophet go to a widow who's preparing her last meal and say, you know what, take that last meal and fill the prophet instead. And, and we see this happening over and over and over again with God. Does that make God selfish? That asks, me first, me first, don't take care of yourself, put me first. That, I think it's a legitimate question. And as I was thinking about this question, the thought that came to my mind was Christ is the foundation stone upon which we should build. And as I think of what it means to be building on on Christ as a foundation, and, and, and that's what, in my mind, that's what it means to put him first. Because if I put me first, then I'm at the bottom, I'm at the base, I'm the base layer, and now I'm the foundation. And if I put Christ second after I've taken care of myself, or even third after I've taken care of my wife, or fourth after I've taken care of my kids or my family, or fifth after I've taken care of my education, and I've taken care of my work, and I've taken care of everything, and I finally put him at the crown, the top, the roof of the house, then what happens if I crumble? Or my wife crumbles? I mean, everything crashes down, and, and where was he? There was never room for him. But if I put him at the base, that foundation will never crumble. And and here's here's what kind of struck me as interesting. If you consider that mankind has been on the earth for over 6,000 years, however long you want to say that we've been here, and we've made some serious progress, some incredible developments. We've learned using the same technology that we use to figure out how fast a car is traveling on the road for police officers to write tickets by taking light and bouncing it off of the vehicle and seeing how that light wave shifts when it comes back and comparing the on the way there versus the way back and measuring that shift in the light wavelength, we can tell how fast that vehicle is moving towards us or away from us. And using that same technology and applying it to the stars, we can see how far away stars are from us if they're moving towards us or away from us. And then measuring light as a, a teeny planet transits across the front of that star and measuring the wavelengths to see what's getting absorbed in the atmosphere of those planets. We can look at distant planets and tell what the makeup of the atmosphere is and what that planet's made out of. We've made some 
amazing developments and discoveries. Talk about being able to provide energy by fusing atoms together or breaking them apart and converting mass into energy in this nuclear process. That's incredible. You think about what we can do with DNA, mapping DNA and and editing genes and splicing DNA and the things that we've done in the medical world and how we've been able to prevent diseases, cure people, save lives, bring people back from the dead Literally, science has made a lot of improvements and a lot of discoveries. But for as much as we've tried, there's one thing that we have always been searching for, and that's life. How do we live forever? If you don't believe me, look at the Crusades and and the quest as they're looking for the Holy Grail or some source, something that's going to, to save them or, or, or grant them long life. Look at the... Is this before or after Indiana Jones steps in? <laughs> before. Oh, okay. Uh, but you could take it to the, the Nazi Germany's. Uh, same same Isn't that type what we're of, talking about? Oh, yeah. Same type of thing. They were looking for the same deal. Uh, the occult. Look at the conquistadors and, and their search for the fountain of youth. Right, this this thing, the Crusades, the Conquistadors, how much blood has been spilt in chasing something that will last forever. Take well, you just mentioned the Conquistadors and whoever, but you once again forgot to mention Indiana Jones and the Nazis. Indiana Jones and the snakes. Snakes. Okay, so they're all looking for them, including the Nazis and the snakes. Hey, go back to ancient texts, Gilgamesh and Yankee Doo. Yankee Doodle, baby. And, and, and Gilgamesh was looking for a secret for life and, and a tree of life. And, and go to the ancient world, and they were all searching for a tree of life. And, and you'd take it and say, okay, in modern times, we don't do that. Not true. Yeah, right. We, we do that at an even higher level. How much are we willing to pay to extend life 15 more minutes? Oh, my goodness. Not, yes, first of all, that's correct. Second of all, like I've been listening to a lot of these kind of future tech podcasts where they're talking about how like the Neuralink stuff that they're working on is so that in theory you can upload memories and then re-download them into another brain. Wow. So in theory, you could continue to live forever as long as you find somebody willing to keep your consciousness and memories <laughs> In their brain, too. Well, and think about all the people that were cryogenically frozen and, and are sitting now in a state frozen, waiting to be thought out at a time where we've learned how to live forever. I feel like that's like a, a quest for the rich, like the ultra wealthy. And, and, and we say maybe just the wealthy, but, but think of all the lotions and potions and... Oh, yeah. Do we live in Utah, baby? <laughs> Trust me, I know all about those oils. <laughs> And, and, and what is it supposed to do for us? And, and we're willing to invest all of this money in something that makes us look younger or makes us live a little bit longer. And, and we pour. It's a trillion dollar. We, we, we spend so much of our resources trying to hold on to life. And you look at the medical industry and what we've coming up with and the experiments and how much we're trying to invest in curing cancer and helping with all of these diseases. And... The, the, the funny thing about all of this is, this has been a, a, a huge major consumption of resources and thought for, for mankind from the beginning, thousands and thousands of years, 
and yet we've never found an answer to life. We can't create it. We can't bring it back. Sure, we can bring someone back from the dead temporarily, but in the end, they're still going to die, right? When this answer, this question, this quest was answered before we even got here. And, And God was alive, guiding prophets, revealing things to Moses, seeing them face to face before he was even born to Mary in the New Testament. That's what we've been studying about this entire year is how he has been calling the shots and helping and guiding and alive and well long before he was born. We're going to talk about the New Testament next year and his mortal life and what he was doing. And then we're going to see that even after he died, he was resurrected And he visited people, and he continues to live today thousands of years after. Here is a man who not only states that he is the creator that brought life here on the planet, and that he is the the, the one that will resurrect us, but he physically came and proved it. So if all of this to say, sorry, I hope this isn't too long of a, all of this to say, Any foundation that's based on us, mankind, for as smart as we are, for as far as we've come, for anything that we do, it's going to crumble. It's going to fall apart. It won't last. I can say I don't want to spend time dedicating it to God because I care more about my family and I'm going to spend time on my family, but then I would be kidding myself because if I really cared about my family, wouldn't I want to base my family on Christ? because it's going to last a lot longer than if I base it on myself. He is the foundation, the, the founding stone that, that the builders have rejected. But if you build upon him, he's a rock upon which if you build, you shall not perish. Agreed. So all of that to say, that's why. I also would like to add, though, that it's not selfish of God to require us to give to him first because he understands the eternal law and the eternal principle that when you sacrifice and when you exercise a little bit of faith, you are entitled and God is bound to give you blessings for it. That exactly the opposite of being selfish is true. He is selflessly selflessly giving us the opportunity to receive an outpouring of blessings that we might not otherwise receive, and I truly believe that. I truly believe that 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 there's a reason that we believe that sacrifice and obedience are the first two laws of the universe, and that all other laws are are built from those two things. Because I mean, I can't tell you enough, man. And I know we've we all have the stories. I know you and I have talked about it a million times, but like God truly selflessly doesn't give us what we want when we are just sure that that is for sure the thing that we want, right? Mm-hmm. And so many times on the flip side of that, if we sacrifice the things that we want willingly, even more so I believe that God is bound to bless us because it's an eternal law that even he's bound by. Absolutely. And you see evidence of that and how he lived his life. If he was a selfish God, why was he washing the apostles' feet? That's that's the thing is that the 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 terms and the use of like, well, isn't God prideful for saying worship me and isn't God 
selfish for saying give me first before and it's just like you all that does is just the reveal you you sadly you miss the point you're missing the point which is he's doing that for us he's not doing that for himself he doesn't need anything that we have <laughs> he's given us it's all his right mm-hmm. he doesn't need that stuff then well, well, then why would he require? Well, then why does he have us worship him? Oh, because he understands the principle. He understands the law that is when you learn to be humble, when you learn how to humble yourself to a higher being, it it lets you enjoy all of the blessings and avoid all of the pitfalls of pride, and and how destructive pride is in every aspect of your life, and. It, it teaches you that, it, and, and it helps show you the process of when you humble yourself to a power greater than yourself and learn to rely on a power greater than yourself, the faith that is, the, the faith that is required to do that, when you are finally able to learn how to do that, it, it opens up, again, an entire world of freedom, of agency, of, of just, again, we've been told of countless blessings, the heavens opening up with blessings. So, so miss me with all of that. Why is it so prideful? Why is he so prideful? Why is he, I'm sorry. I just, I can't get down with that. When every time I've done those things, I've been blessed for it. Like truly I'm probably the selfish one. Right. Yeah. And the, and the entire natural world testifies to this. I mean, you think about it. If you sacrifice your body in a sense that you're going to exercise. Exercise is not a comfortable, enjoyable no, thing. Lifting weights <laughs> and running and pushing yourself is, is, is painful. And you're sacrificing pleasure for pain, but by doing that, you're rewarded with a greater level of fitness. It's the rose bush where if you, if you prune them correctly, when the first rose comes out, you clip it off. Well, why would you clip off something so beautiful? Why why would you sacrifice that beautiful thing that the rose bush is giving you? Well, because if you don't do that, it's going to suck up the rest of the nutrients from that bush, and all of the other roses that will eventually come later are going to be small and not as healthy. So if, you, if, if you're willing to clip even those beautiful things, if you're willing to sacrifice even those incredible things with faith that what it's going to do is just give you then now an entire rose bush full of big beautiful roses instead of just the one right Mm -hmm. because the thing is again sacrifice isn't as easy as something bad for something good most of the time it's usually something good for something else good and that's why it's hard for some people and that's why it's hard for me i shouldn't say some people that's why it's hard for me all of the time but again like i i have i've done it enough times that i'm that i have faith in the process of when you sacrifice, when you're willing to exercise some faith to when you're willing to humble yourself and not have pride, you are blessed exponentially more than you would have been had you taken care of yourself first. And and it's such a universal thing that applies everywhere. I mean, even in business, you have to spend money to earn money. You have to sacrifice something. It takes cost. It takes investment. It takes faith. It takes risk. Like, mm-hmm. like it does. Anything worth value takes sacrifice and faith on some level. All right, let's keep moving. Okay, one last thing I wanted to hit on this topic, Nate, when I got you here. Yeah. When we're talking about 
looking at these people and God says, look, you, you prioritized your family, you prioritized your house, and, and you left me kind of to the side. And, and a, a lot of what this is going to be about, Zechariah uh, following here, is the Lord remembers. And, and the Lord is trying to remind them in saying, look, the Lord remembers when he sent prophets to you in the first place. And when you weren't willing to listen to him, when you decided to put yourselves first, how did that go for you? You, you went to Babylon and it wasn't good. It, it, remember that. And, and he says, consider your ways. Does it feel like you're sowing a lot and you're not harvesting a lot? You, you, you eat, but not enough. You drink, but you're not filled. This idea that maybe we're spinning our wheels. And, and the, the point I wanted to come back with you on this, Nate, is, is this idea, maybe of even harmony, in the sense that what does it take if, if you've got everybody working in concert with each other, but one person rather than, than working in concert with each other, unified in the sense that this is what we're doing, this is what we need to do, they're out trying to take care of themselves or trying to make themselves look good. And, and they find that they're just not getting enough traction because they're busy doing their own thing. And, and it seems... I don't know. It 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 seems like something you. <laughs> I would be a, what an expert, have expert on. <laughs> I don't know if an expert's what, the right just way. Just because I work with bands, that they always have that one dude that needs to be a little bit louder and on their own page. No, trust me, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't. I. It's uh, all I can say is it's annoying and it makes the whole product suck and it makes my job a lot harder. So, but I don't. I mean, as far as like. As far as uh, relating it back to the scriptures, I, I'm not sure. All, all, I, all I know is that I, I do know exactly what you're talking about, and there probably is a very profound lesson that I, I probably need to think through there. Because, But it's funny because when a lot of bands come to work with me, it's almost guaranteed that somebody in that band's getting fired by the time they're done working with me because I just don't have any patience for that stuff. And I can usually like tell the rest of the band, I know you've wanted to fire this person anyways. I'm now telling you that you were right and you probably should just do it so that they can stop being a pain in my butt. It's, it's counterproductive. It is counterproductive. Even if they're supposedly supposed to be playing the same thing, but you have one person on their own program, it's a pain. I'm out. I don't know how that has anything to do with this, but that it's a true principle. It's a real thing. Well, that's the thing. Like they, they, the Lord's saying, you think you're, you're 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 putting all this energy, and it's not it's not working. To me, this more goes back to what we've been harping on, especially earlier in the year, which is you. C- there's a difference between doing good things that you've decided are good and that you've decided that you want to do, and then doing it the Lord's way, right? And, yes. and 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 I actually think that circling back, well, as you've been saying about this, this is what's been hitting me is what the, is the the point that we used to just hammer home every week, which is, yes, it is a good thing to go spend time with your family. Yes, it is a good thing to put a lot of energy into those things that you're talking about, right? But not if it's at the expense of putting the Lord first. And so the Lord's saying, yeah, you're not going to be able to like get out of doing what I've told you to do by also doing, you know, by doing something that's also good. You do it my way, my way, and 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 it's like this is there's we we used to talk about this a lot. Like again, it's easy when you go, do you obey the commandments or do you go and like steal your neighbor's dog and 
you know, crash their car and lie about it, right? It's like, it, this isn't usually like, you're not trying to justify a bad thing. A lot of times, and this is, again, kind of even to the earlier point, a lot of the excuse of not putting the Lord first is going, or doing what the Lord's asked you to do first is going, well, but I'm I'm also doing something else that's good, right? Like, yeah, I don't go to church. I don't, I don't want to go to church, but that's because... Um, I'm spending the time up in the mountains and, and that's, trust me, that's just as spiritual as going to church. Even though God's told me that he wants me to go to church. I've, I, I know that it's also a good thing to go and spend time with your family up fishing in the mountains or riding out on the boat. You're like, well, I mean, yeah, that is a good thing to do, but not if it's at the expense of doing what the Lord's asked you to do. Yeah. Uh, the, the Lord. This was a huge theme, right? I mean, halfway, the, all this, this whole first, I mean, I, I remember at least us harping on this like every week. It feels, it feels, it does feel that way. But I feel like we haven't talked about it in a while though. It, it does seem like it's been a while. We've been so focused on it with these prophets prophesying about Assyria and Babylon. It, it's just been a little bit since we've kind of hit some of that. So I think it's actually a good thing to then to remember this. And and the thing is, man, it's actually kind of clicking for me right now, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, of course, then it's like, well, why does it feel like I'm putting in all of this work doing a good thing, but still not feeling fulfilled? Why does it feel like there's still something lacking? And man, we all know that feeling, right? Like, dude, even all the time now still, like I, I work an insane amount of hours and there are still times where I'm like, how the heck am I still just like... <laughs> broke you know like not broke but you know what i mean like why was why does it still feel like i'm just like one or two bad months away from needing to go get a day job again it's and 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 then but but what does that inspire you to do hopefully maybe take a look at the process right maybe take a look at what you're doing and going where where am i either making a shortcut or where am i where am I doing just work, busy work? And, and is there a more effective, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it hopefully it causes you to have a little bit of reflection, right? To analyze the workflow and to see where you're blowing it. Would, would you say maybe it would have you consider your ways? <sighs> Nailed that one, dude. I honestly feel like I should take some credit for tossing you that softball, but honestly, I didn't <laughs> do it on purpose. You were just right there to just knock it out of the park though. But you know what I mean, though. Yes. Now I now I'm thinking about that. It's like, oh, cool. I do know what that's like on a kind of a temporal level, and then I'm like, oh, cool. How does that relate to a spiritual level? Like me as somebody who complains about open mic Sundays. Like maybe maybe there's a reason that like sometimes on those weeks I come home from church not feeling super edified, and maybe that's my fault. Maybe, or it's still just a meeting that I hate, but. <laughs> But you know what I mean, though. It's, I, I guess I'm just saying, like it's in those times where you go, oh, it is more convenient for me to not have to go to church and instead go spend time up in the mountains, which is something that I want to do. But why is it that I'm still not feeling the same fulfillment? Cause I haven't considered my ways. Well, but but I and and that's the that's the challenge when he says this is. I, I I'm inviting you. Put me first. Consider your ways. And and he knows that it's something that he's hard. To, that he's re, he is requiring something hard. 
because how can you, it's stated very succinctly in the New Testament, we're going to get there soon next year, those who try to keep your life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake shall find it. Killer. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Zechariah. Zechariah is a little interesting uh, because he's going to be influencing a lot of the... Let me restate that. Zechariah is quoted a lot by John the Revelator in the New Testament. And, and John the Revelator, when we read the book of Revelation, sometimes it's not very clear what it's trying to say. There's a lot of imagery and and it's it it's almost kind of a trip trying to understand it and what it's talking about and these beasts, and and that's the flavor of Zechariah. He's he's going to be talking a lot of images and and he's going to be very ambiguous sometimes. And when I read Zechariah, to me, it feels like I'm having a conversation with somebody who expects me to know the context of what they're talking about, but kind of leaves me out in the dark. It's, it's like when you're talking to your wife and she just finished watching a movie and she comes to tell you all about it and you're like, wait a second, I don't even know what you're even talking about. Sure. You find out it's a movie or a show and yeah, you just like, sometimes you, you get carried away in the moment and you think the other person has all the same context to you because your brain's going 100 miles an hour. That's Zachariah. So coming into chapter two, I, and I want to give you some ideas. Zachariah is going to be prophesying about the restoration of Israel in the north, and he's going to be prophesying about the restoration of Judah in the south. And when he prophesies about this, I'm, I'm going to show you there's a lot of depth here and a lot of things that are not very obvious up front. Chapter 2, verse 7, Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. That makes sense. Zion's been carried away captive into Babylon, and they're going to be delivered at going back to Jerusalem. I could follow that. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory has sent, um, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he toucheth you that toucheth the apple of his eye. That makes sense. Babylon's offended his people, and he's going to deliver them, and he's going to offend them for offending his people. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to thy servants, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined unto the Lord in that day, and and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of the holy habitation. Now, if you weren't paying close attention you might have missed that. Going back into verse 10, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. The Lord's prophesying not just the restoration of Jerusalem coming out of Babylon, but the reason why Jerusalem has to be restored, the reason why the temple has to be rebuilt and the people need to be there is because Jesus himself, the Lord, is going to come to this people. He is prophesying his own birth. 
and, and he's going to prophesy about these things. I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee. And you might look at that and say, how, how do you know that that's referring to Christ's time and not just the Jews coming out of Babylon into Jerusalem? Well, read the next verse. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. When the Jews went back to Jerusalem, how many nations joined with Judah and said, hey, we're going to worship your God and we're going to be God's people? This, I, I look at this and I don't see that. Historically, I don't see where that fits. But I look at Christ being born in Jerusalem. I look at him being rejected by his people. And I look at his apostles and the vision when they see the, the, the unclean food that's laid out and, and the Lord commands Peter to eat. And he says, I never have I eaten unclean food. And the Lord says, don't call unclean that which I have made clean. The gospel needs to go to the Gentiles. And now many nations are joined to God's people. I see this as not just a prophecy of the restoration of them at that time, but far reaching into things that have happened that were going to happen and and what's crazy is i also see in the prophecies and and you guys have kind of gotten a sense of my 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 perspective and flavor of we talking throughout this year of these prophecies a lot of the prophecies that people look up at the future i i like to look at and say these have already happened and point to events in modern times where they've happened but as i read zechariah i see things in here that I cannot explain, that I think are still yet to happen, even far-reaching from today, if that makes sense. Did, did I state that all right, Nate? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Um, Zachariah is just amazing. I, I feel like I need a lot more than a week to really digest what he's trying to say and understand it, but I'm going to hit you with a few quick highlights when we talk about the restoration of this people, uh, and I'm going to skip into chapter 10 of Zechariah, verse 1. And, and this this verse, I think, is very important to us today even. Ask you the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone, grass in the field. It, it, that's not really I really want to go, but I do think it's important. Ask the Lord for rain, and he'll send rain, because I feel like we could always use more rain here in Utah. <laughs> for the idols have spoken vanity, for the diviners uh, have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. So he's talking about ask for rain. We've talked about this before. Ask for revelation and I will send it. And he's going to be talking about the restoration in this case of Joseph, not Judah. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited the flocks, the house of Judah, and hath made them as godly um, as his goodly horse in the battle. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of the battle the bow, and every one oppressor together. And they shall be as mighty men, which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets of the battle in which they shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders of the horses shall be confounded and I will strengthen the house of Judah. So right here, this snippet, we're talking about Judah. He's made them powerful. He's made them mighty and he's going to make it so that everyone's going to fear them. Uh, and, and as I said a second ago, when I look at Judah and I look at the Lord coming and all of these nations being joined to them and I saw that as not the time after they leave Babylon, but at a future date, I look at this too 
And I can't see Judah as being this powerful nation that everyone feared in the ancient Near East after Babylon. In fact, they kind of became a tug-of-war property between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies in Egypt, and, and they weren't a strong powerhouse. If I try to figure any time in history where Judah has made other nations tremble, the only thing I can think of is modern-day Judah in Israel today. Uh, but I'm going to keep going because I said this is going to be talking about Joseph, and I want to get to where it talks about Joseph. Verse 6, And I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to the pl- and place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad, and their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased, and I will sow them among the nations, the people, the Gentiles, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. So he's talking about Ephraim, the northern kingdom. He's referring to them as being sown among all the nations all over the place. And so he's going to be pulling them from all of the nations together. And he says he'll try to bring them there, but there shall not be room for them. And place shall not be found for them. So where do they go? Verse 11, and he shall pass through the sea of affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deep depths of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart away and I will strengthen them in the Lord and they will walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. So when he's talking about the redemption of Judah, Joseph, and he says, there's not going to be room for them in that part of the world and I am going to have to bring them through the sea of tribulation. I, I almost look at this, and, and I've, I've talked about the New Jerusalem being here on the American continent, and these people in the early times of the Restoration being brought across the sea. And just as they were delivered from Egypt by the parting of the Red Sea, and that Judah was delivered from Babylon by the river being diverted and dried up, I look at Joseph as having to be carried across the sea of tribulation. And you look at the early um, pilgrims that came here seeking relief from religious persecution. They're, they're literal seas, troubling seas that they crossed, but also the, the, the religious persecution and seas that they went through to get here. And not only was that the case, but then they were oppressed as they got here by the nations that, had, that, that they had fled from. When you look at the Revolutionary War, and, and it's going to say here, I will deliver them, I will Uh, he's going to talk about breaking the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away and I will strengthen them and they shall walk in the name of the Lord. And I see Joseph crossing the sea and breaking off the the rule of the nations from where they came. And, And so I look at that as prophetic of what's going to happen. Then you look at Judah and Judah's going to go through a lot more. Joseph kind of has this this clear path of restoration, and he's talking about a future time. But Judah is going to go through 
even worse times. And I, and I look at that through through the Holocaust and the, and the problems that they're going to have. Um, but you keep fasting forward, and you're going to see a time when the Lord comes among them. And I think that this is the part where we're going to get to where we haven't seen these days yet. I'm going to fast forward to chapter 13. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, when we talk about being able to wash sin and uncleanness away, there's only one person that can do that, and that's Jesus Christ. So if they say, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David for sin and uncleanness, then in my mind as I read that, I, I look at that as a day when the Jews accept Christ. Because that's the only way I see a fountain being opened for them to receive that cleansing. And you, and you can see it because you fast forward to verse 6, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, Those, which, um, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And, and you see Christ come, and the Jews see him, and they ask him about the wounds, and then they're going to realize that he was the Savior. Sweet. But it's, it's, not, it's not super clear. Uh, ch- chapter 11, maybe one last thing to touch on, Nate. Um, when the Lord's talking about being a shepherd to Judah, and he has two sticks to, to, to hell them. One is beauty, and the other he calls bands. And the bands is what binds them to him, the covenant. And the beauty is that this is his beautiful people. And when the sheep are being belligerent, he decides he doesn't want to feed them. He breaks one of his staffs, and that's the beauty, the, the beauty of the people. Eventually, he's going to break the other staff, which is his covenant with them. And, and he's not going to feed them or take care of them and his people anymore. And it's interesting because he asks his servants to give him the value. What, what, what do they value the Lord for? Uh, verse 12, And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So he says, here's the shepherd, and he's asking the sheep, which is kind of a weird thing, what do you think my wage should be for, for taking care of you, providing you? So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And what makes that interesting is the 30 pieces of silver was the price that you would pay for a slave labor for the day, which is more insulting than if they wouldn't have paid him anything at all. Because if they wouldn't have paid him anything at all, that's one thing. But to now say you, you are a slave to us, now it's making a statement. And it's also interesting because that's the price that they paid for Judas, Judas and, and, and paying the price for, for Christ. And so you look at some of these verses, and, and it does feel a little bit strange, and it, it is a little bit hard to understand, and it feels like we're missing some of the context, but you start to see what he saw and the things that he's trying to describe. And really, he's prophesying not just about the restoration of Israel in his day, but far-reaching into the future to things that I don't think have even happened yet today. Great stuff, man. What are we talking about next week? Oh, your favorite, Nate. We're we're hitting Malachi. I do love Malachi, actually. I, I have some thoughts. 
thank you everybody for listening. Um, Jason, great work today. Um, seriously, thanks for all the time and prep that you put into the podcast. Um, thank you for listening, all of you out there listening. Thank you for submitting reviews. It really does help us on the various streaming sites. Um, thank you for continuing to listen. Um, we do appreciate you. Send any comments or questions to hi at weeklydeepdive.com. And uh, I don't think there's anything else. So until next week, see ya. See ya.